Crypto and the Conservation of Centralization, originally published on November 5th, 2021, written and read by Dror Pollack. You can't decentralize the web. At best, you can kill old winners and pick new ones. The web is broken. A handful of companies dominate it. Google and Baidu track all our queries. Facebook and Tencent monitor our social interactions. Twitter and Weibo decide what we're allowed to share. Amazon and Alibaba dominate retail, etc. Above, above these corporate giants, governments from Beijing to DC encroach on the free flow of information in the name of social harmony or public health. Crypto and blockchain-based applications aim to steer the web towards its original vision, an open network based on public domain protocols controlled by no one. It promises to enable decentralized alternatives to the tech and government giants we all know and love. This effort can be divided into two main fronts, decentralized utility and decentralized ownership. Decentralized utility aims to provide online services without relying on a centralized system. For example, instead of storing your files on server farms owned by Amazon or Microsoft, you can store them on Arweave, Storage, or Filecoin. The latter will keep your files encrypted on a network of computers governed by a protocol that cannot be stopped or altered by any individual entity. A bit like Napster or LimeWire and what they tried to do a couple of decades ago, but a little different as well. Decentralized ownership aims to share the ownership and governance of digital platforms with the users and stakeholders. So Mirror, for example, enables writers to publish their content online, monetize it, as well as own a piece of the publishing platform itself and vote on how it is operated. Helium and Livepeer operate networks of wireless hotspots and video streaming infrastructure. These networks are maintained and secured by users who own specific tokens and compensate them for their services and enable them to participate in governance. Now, these crypto projects are still small and experimental. They point towards an alternative way of building, maintaining, and marketing the type of services that giant centralized corporations currently provide. But decentralizing, decentralizing one class of internet companies does not guarantee that a new class of centralized giants will not emerge in their stead. In fact, decentralizing power from one pair of hands is almost guaranteed to concentrate that power in another pair of hands. A powerful theory and the history of the internet itself explain why. Let's start with the theory. Clayton M. Christensen is best known for explaining how new companies with worse products can disrupt powerful incumbents. But another theory of his describes how power and profits shift within an industry. This theory also hints that when parts of a value chain become decentralized, other parts become more centralized. In The Innovator's Solution, his book, Christensen introduced the law of conservation of attractive profits. I'll provide a simple explanation in a moment, but first in Christensen's words, and I quote, the law of conservation of attractive profits state that in the value chain, there is a requisite juxtaposition of modular and interdependent architectures and of reciprocal processes of commoditization and decommoditization that exists in order to optimize the performance of what is not good enough. The law states that when modularity and commoditization cause attractive profits to disappear at one stage of the value chain, the opportunity to earn attractive profits with proprietary products will usually emerge at an adjacent stage. All right, so let, let me translate this to English. So Christensen means that delivering a product or service relies on multiple components or steps or activities. Now, some of those components are available off the shelf and fit together easily, so they're modular. Other components need to be custom-made and combined using an additional custom component, which means some sort of integrated process. 
Consider a familiar example. Airbnb relies on an integrated digital layer and on a modular physical layer. So its website, online marketing, customer support, payment, and fraud detection capabilities were developed or combined specifically for its own purposes. So it's integrated and custom-made. Meanwhile, the rooms and apartments it markets were developed by other people, and Airbnb simply gets them, so to speak, off the shelf. By doing so, Airbnb assumes that these rooms meet some basic standards of safety and habitability. Airbnb makes money by controlling the digital layer, even though its main business is actually providing access to the physical spaces. This type of business would not have been possible 100 years ago, or probably 50 years ago either. But it is possible now because, one, cities have codes that ensure that all buildings meet a pretty high standard of safety and livability, and two, the online flow of information makes it possible for Airbnb and its customers to vet and trust properties even if they've never inspected them in person. So the emergence of building standards and the evolution of technology enables Airbnb to get its physical inventory, so to speak, off the shelf. This stands in contrast to traditional hotels that had to build and control their own inventory in order to know that it is suitable for human habitation. The emergence of building standards and the evolution of technology made it possible to run a de facto hotel without owning, building, or operating an actual hotel. It also shifted the way profits are made in the hotel industry. So building and operating a hotel are no longer the key activities that make a hotel company profitable. Instead, a hotel company must have an integrated online brand and marketing machine. And yes, many traditional hotel companies still make money, but to do so, they had to develop their own integrated digital channels and online brands. So to return to Christensen's terminology, standards and technology commoditized the physical components in the hotel value chain. As a result, profits shifted to those companies that integrated and controlled the digital components in that value chain. The commoditization of the actual hotel did not eliminate all profits in the industry. They just shifted these profits to other activities. Hence, the law of conservation of attractive profits. When some parts of the value chain become commoditized, other parts necessarily become more valuable. This brings us back to crypto. The theory of Christensen was developed in relation to the value chains of specific products, but it can loosely explain the evolution of whole industries and ecosystems. Let's look at the web itself. Christensen was a business school professor, so his theory focuses on profits. But as Nathan Bachez points it out, the theory is ultimately about power, market power. To show what this means in practice, consider the evolution of the commercial internet. So in the prehistoric era, there was very little online content. So accessing it was difficult and participating in online commerce was an act of bravery, right? Putting your credit card into a website used to be a crazy thing. Uh, so AOL and others created so-called wall gardens that enabled people to access a curated version of the internet. So everything on AOL was curated and paid for. The sports content came from CBS, the news from ABC, and sending someone a bouquet had to go through 1-800-Flowers. Social interactions were limited to other AOL users, so you couldn't just interact with anyone, only with people who are actual verified AOL customers. AOL charged an entrance fee to this garden, and users paid it because it was too difficult to figure out all the different steps on their own. AOL had the power to determine what people saw, whose content they consumed, and what goods they bought. In 2000, the year 2000, this power translated into billions in profits and a valuation of $224 billion. But AOL's market power did not last long. More and more content was gradually freely available online. 
new standards emerged to make it easy for people to browse websites, chat, and email each other. Many of the things AOL charged for were now available outside the walls of the garden. These activities became commoditized, and content became a commodity. AOL's power eroded. In a growing web of millions of websites, the most valuable activity was no longer to tell people what to consume. Instead, it was to help people find what they were looking for. And so Google emerged as the Internet's primary gatekeeper, the new gatekeeper, and also the primary moneymaker. But Google's relative position did not last long either. The Internet has become more personal and more social. Individual people, as opposed to companies and specialized webmasters, started to generate more content and wanted to interact with each other rather than simply browse static content. Power shifted towards Facebook and other platforms that facilitated such interaction and organized user-generated content in addictive algorithmic feeds. There are other pieces to this story, but you get the idea. This brings us to our current era, where content creators are at the mercy of giant platforms and, and a handful of trillion-dollar companies dominate the web. When one part of the web gets decentralized, another part necessarily gets more centralized. This trillion-dollar question is which companies will be the giants of the coming Web3 era. I'll have to revisit this topic to consider this question in more detail, but an initial way to approach it is to divide it into two separate questions. One, what does blockchain commoditize? What does it make abundant? And two, who is in a position to become a gatekeeper in a world of such abundance? The answer to the first question is that blockchain commoditizes investments by making everything ownable and investable. It creates an abundance of things that can be owned. It also creates an abundance of various resources by making them easier to share. Finally, it creates an abundance of human engagement, the ability to incentivize people to act in order to support different causes and projects. Based on the above, the answer to the second question is that gatekeepers of Web3 will be organizations that know how to allocate capital in a world of endless investment opportunities. So Andreessen Horowitz, for example, is already working on something uh, based on these assumptions. So these organizations will also be organizations that aggregate demand for various shared resources, just like Airbnb, but for many more things. So some crypto projects are working on that, but the winner will likely be a consumer brand that makes these new technologies accessible to the masses. And finally, the giant gatekeeper of Web3 will be organizations and groups of individuals that can create a compelling narrative and spark the imagination of large armies of fans. In a world where people can get paid to do anything, the biggest winners are those that make people part of something. There's much more to unpack here, but I have to stop and ship this newsletter. I'm still suffering from <laughs> newborn plus toddler brain <laughs> as a dad to two young kids, but it was important for me to share these ideas while they're still raw. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this newsletter and podcast, please share it with your friends, uh, rank us on your favorite podcast app, and uh, subscribe. Thank you again.